All right. This is good because, according to my watch, I got tons of time. I like that. I like that. Okay. So open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 14, please. Matthew chapter 14. We are moving into a new section of this gospel. We have finished the parables of the kingdom, which is an extended teaching time that Jesus gave to primarily his disciples, and we spent quite a bit of time going through that, and we're, we're transitioning now to a major, another major section of the gospel. And I thought it would be helpful to us this morning to maybe step back from the details for, a, for one time and, and get a, more of a lay of the land. You know, we're kind of halfway through Matthew's gospel, and so I thought it might be helpful for us to see where we're going over the uh, coming, whatever, um, period of time while we, uh, while we go where we're going. So, so that's what I want to do with you this morning, is, is, to, uh, is to look at this section. There are really two major sections left in Matthew's gospel for us to cover. One of them begins this morning here in chapter, essentially chapter 14, and runs all the way through the end of chapter 20. And then the, the final section of the gospel begins in chapter 21 and runs through the end of the book in, in chapter 28. And, and chapter 21 to the end of the book, chapter 28, covers a period of time of um, essentially a week. The, the majority of it is devoted to the final week, what we know as the Passion Week of Christ. So... Uh, Beginning in Matthew 14 and running to the end of Matthew 20 is about a year's worth of time. So uh, the, the end of the book is a week. We're going to look in an overview this morning at the final year, approximately, of Jesus' public ministry. And before we uh, delve right into it, just to, to remind you of some things, uh, things that I'm sure you know, but to remind you of them nonetheless. The Bible is unlike any book you have ever read or will ever read. It is absolutely unlike anything you have ever read or will read. It is a foreign book. It is a book filled with all kinds of strange customs, practices, places, events, and people. Well, with many, many funny names, particularly in the Old Testament, right? The Bible is, is written in a way that is somewhat foreign to our 21st century Western ear. It's not how we approach things in our culture. And so, so we need to be aware of that. And one of, the, one of the places that's quite well illustrated, I think, is, is in terms of how the Bible handles history. How it handles history. Because when it comes to, to the topic of history, for us moderns, us 21st century Westerners, we see history primarily in a chronological fashion, right? There was this, and then 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 there was this. And that's how we tend to approach it. That's how it tends to be taught in our school systems. Perhaps that's one of the reasons most people despise it, uh, because we have to memorize a whole series of dates. And, and we just, it's been given to us in that fashion, and, and we see it that way. But that's not how the Bible primarily approaches history. 
The Bible does not primarily approach history in a chronological way that you and I are used to, a relaying of a sequence of facts and events. Instead, what the, what the scriptures do is to often speak in, in thematic ways. That is, that, that events are moved around chronologically, not always, but it occurs with some great frequency, in order to, to make a case, in order to present a point of view, in order to lead us to a certain conclusion that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the writers of the Scriptures want us to see. It's going someplace. And that is, that is true, certainly, in the Old Testament, and it is very true in the Gospels. Very, very true in the Gospels. And, uh, for example, it's, and it's, not a, it's not a mystery. They don't, they don't hide the football, as it were, uh, but it, they lay it out for us uh, where we want to go. And, and probably a really good example of that is, is found in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, where John says, and, and John's Gospel is arranged around seven signs or seven miracles of Jesus. He has selected these out. John says, of all the many, many miracles and things that Jesus said and did, I've selected these seven and he says it here, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written with a purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John says very clearly to you, this is why I wrote what I wrote. And as I say, the material is, is often arranged somewhat thematically to make a point, to bring us to a conclusion. They want us to, to read and believe that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and that by believing this message, we enter into eternal life. It is how we enter into eternal life. And so this... Um, the material that we have before us this morning is Matthew's presentation. But this one is a little bit different in, within the book of Matthew because chapters 14 to the end of, of 20, 14 to 20, is actually chronological for the most part. And that is very different than Matthew's other uh, earlier part of the book. Luke provides a much more chronological fashion that we're used to, but Matthew moves things around until he arrives at chapter 14. And then beginning in chapter 14, he begins to relate the events of the final year of the life of Jesus in somewhat chronological fashion, a sequence of this and then this and then this and then this. And he wants to bring us to his conclusion that, that Jesus is the messianic king and that the, the nation should believe but they haven't, and he wants, to, wants us to understand why they haven't. And, and this chronological section advances his purposes. So earlier thematically, now it's going to be chronologically. And if we don't understand that in Matthew's gospel, we get kind of messed up. So let me just back you up a little bit and, and, and show you what I mean by that. So in chapter 12, I, uh, and I just need to say this to you, and we're going to be moving around the scriptures this morning, so stay nimble. Okay? So in Matthew chapter 12 and in verse 22, Matthew 12 and 22, begins what we have said more than one occasion is commonly known as Jesus' busy day. 
busy day. And, and beginning here in verse 22 of chapter 12 and running all the way through uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 52 are the events of Jesus' busy day. And, and we looked at these in, in great detail, right? This was, the, this was the, the healing of the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and then the accusation by the Pharisees that Jesus had done this in the power of, of Satan himself, and then the, the commission there of the unforgivable sin, and, and, the, uh, and then the ministry of kingdom parables that Jesus undertakes, and, and so forth. And so we, we talked about that. And following that, uh, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus leaves and he goes to Nazareth. And we, we looked at that last week. And that's all, that's all chronological. But, but actually, chapter 9 and beginning in verse 35, so 9 and 35, and running all the way to, to chapter 11, which... Uh, actually happens after chapter 13 chronologically. It happens afterwards. So, so the summoning of the 12, the giving them of, of instructions to, to send them out into the field where Jesus says there at the end of chapter 9, seeing the people, he says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. He summons the 12, he gives them the commission, he sends them out two by two to go to all the cities Right? And, there, and then in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished giving them instruction to the twelve, he departs from there, and he teaches and preaches in their cities. That all happens historically after the parables of the kingdom. After the, the unforgivable sin of related in chapter 12. And that's why Jesus says to them, it's going to be such a difficult road before you, because he, he knows the heart of the nation. I'm sending you out, I'm giving one sort of final preaching tour here, but they're not going to respond well to you. They haven't responded well to me, they're not going to respond well to you. And then, Jesus, or excuse me, Matthew relays the next year of Jesus' life, and he does it chronologically. And we, can, and we can basically take it chapter by chapter and see it as a progression or a movement over that final year. And it actually begins in verse 13 of chapter 14, and it runs to the end of chapter 20. And, and if you're keeping track, I, I'm just, I call it uh, Jesus' ministry on the move. Jesus' ministry on the move. And and it's interesting to to make a careful examination of these chapters, these six chapters, because they they reveal not only a chronological movement when compared with the other Gospels, they also speak of of an extensive geographical movement. And this is new for Matthew's Gospel. What we call an extensive geographical movement, meaning that that Jesus moves around geographically within within the nation and outside of the nation in a way that he has never done before. In other words, Jesus and his disciples in the final year there they did a lot of traveling. The show was they took the show on the road. They went a lot of different places, and by looking at at where they went. It will help answer the question of of why they went. Why did they move so much in the final year? The first first two and a half years were were much more of a fixed ministry, but but now it's ministry on the move. Why? 
And as we understand the why, I think what we're going to come to is a, is a deeper love for the man, Christ Jesus. We're going to get to know him better, and as we know him better, we will love him more. Now, in order to do that this morning, we're going to have to make a reference uh, with some frequency to the maps in your Bible. Most Bibles contain maps. Most people never look at them. Most people never look at them. It's sort of there in the back of our Bible, right? Oh, I got a new Bible. It's got this and it's got that and it's got the other thing. And oh, yeah, it's got a couple of maps. But if I can just say this as we begin, we are poorer. We are poorer in our, in our spiritual lives because we ignore the maps. Okay? They're there because they're valuable. And so we're going to look at, we're going to look at some maps. And as we, as we work through in a, in a very much, excuse me, a, a, a flyover approach to chapters 14 through 20, we're going to be frequently looking at the maps. So what I'm going to need you to do is I'm going to need you to keep a, a, some sort of thumb or something in the map. And then we're going to be looking at the text. And uh, we will also reproduce the maps for you on the screens. Okay? But, but if I can encourage you, it's worth it to see it on the screen and then find it on your own map. It's worth the effort. And it's worth the effort because it, the map is going to open up to you and it's going to become a much more valuable tool for you in really understanding the life and ministry of your Savior. So we're going to introduce you this morning to uh, the maps. Now, beloved, the, the Bible is a, is a factual, historical record of God's activities in space and time. And we need, to, we need to know that and we need to affirm that. Because when we, when we fail to, to understand that, there is the tendency to approach the Word of God as a, a series of, of disjointed religious sayings and teachings. And in the end, we are poorer for that. It, it, the Bible can become like a, just a religious book where it just, you know, you've got to go for, for food for your soul, but, but you're not really sure what it means, and you don't know where you're going, and you don't know why it's there, and you're poorer for it. And I'd even be so bold to say is, is that the, the long-term effect of that, particularly upon the, the, the younger generation, is that when they, when they get off to, to school and so forth, and they, and they are under the assault of a world that rejects the Scriptures, if they, do not, if they are not convinced that the Bible is an accurate, historical, factual account of what God has done in space and time, but is instead a collection of religious stories, their faith is in trouble. Their faith is in trouble. So the maps are, are, are one way for us to be reminded of the reality that what we have is real stuff, real truth. These things really happened. They really happened. So this morning we're going to trace the travels of Jesus in his final year. That's where we're going. We'll trace the travels of Jesus in his final year, and we're going to, in the process, answer the question, uh, why did he move around so much? 
Why did he move around so much? What was going on? Okay, so a little background to get us going before we, before we hit the first map. We need to know a little bit about the political situation at the time because it plays into this. So let me, um, let me just kind of remind you of some things. Hopefully you know some of these things. It begins with Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Herod the Great is, is mentioned briefly in the, in the beginning of the Gospels. His life intersects that of Jesus, but only briefly. Herod ruled from 37 B.C. until 4 B.C. when he died. Herod the Great was a, a client king of Rome. A client king means that Rome was the final authority and they set him up as king in Israel. And his kingdom was a relatively extensive kingdom. And I've got a map for you here to see that. And uh, maybe you've got a map in the back of your Bible in which you can see it as well. But the green there represents Herod's kingdom. And you can see that it was rather extensive. It, it, it's very, it travels very far north above the Sea of Galilee, and it travels down essentially to the, to the bottom of the Dead Sea. This is, the, this is the kingdom of Herod the Great. And it's important to understand this because Because when Herod died in 4 B.C., his his kingdom was divided among his sons. At least the ones that he hadn't killed already. Three of them, he had four sons, there were three of them in which it was divided. And the kingdom uh, divided among these three is a very, very important background factor in the 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 public ministry of Jesus Christ. It plays into it in a big way. These three sons also briefly appear in the pages of the New Testament. So the first one, after Herod dies, the first of the three sons that inherit his kingdom as it has been broken up, none of which, by the way, were kings. Herod was the last king. So when he died, Caesar Augustus took his three sons and he didn't make them kings. He made them something less than a king. And he gave them less uh, uh, to rule, just a piece of, his father's, of their father's kingdom. The first one we meet on the pages of the New Testament is over in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 22. And his name is Archelaus. You see it there. It says, but when he, that is Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, Herod the Great, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. That's significant because Archelaus was given reign over Judea and Samaria. And you can, uh, you can see that on that map there. Uh, Judea, the area roughly opposite the Dead Sea to the, to the left or to the west of the Dead Sea, and then Samaria. That's Archelaus's reign. Joseph takes Jesus to Galilee because it's outside of the political boundaries of Archelaus. Archelaus can't get to him. That's why they do that. Now, Archelaus himself uh, mismanaged what had been given to him, and he was relatively quickly deposed by Caesar. And this particular area of Judea and Samaria was 
placed under direct Roman rule by what was called a procurator, which we would call a Roman governor, and the most famous one from the New Testament's point of view was a man by the name of Pilate. And so that's how Pilate gets to be where he is. So when we get to the public ministry of Jesus, Pilate was, was made procurator in AD 26. So when we get to the, to the pages of the New Testament that deal with the life of Jesus and his death, all of Jesus' activities in and around Jerusalem are under the direct Roman oversight of the procurator, Pilate. That's why Jesus has to go before Pilate to be tried. So Archelaus gives way to, to Pilate. The next son that receives a piece of territory uh, appears in uh, Matthew chapter 14, and he is known as Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch is a word that means essentially uh, a fourth of a kingdom. He's also called Herod Antipas, and he rules over the area of Galilee and Perea. And you can see Perea, it appears uh, to the east or to the right of the Jordan River, marked out there on that map, part of Herod's kingdom. So Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, and he rules from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39, and he rules over the area of Galilee and Perea. And these are important areas because there's a very high concentration of Jewish people living in Galilee and Perea. That's the reason that John the Baptist conducts the majority of his baptizing ministry in the land of Perea or the territory of Perea. And under the auspices or under the oversight of Herod the Tetrarch. And that will be important when we come back and look at chapter 14 verses 1 to 12 next week. The third son that we need to know about is uh, one who appears in uh, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, and he's called Philip the Tetrarch. So Luke 3 and verse 1, we are introduced to this fellow. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, and Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was Tetrarch of the region of Ithuria and Traconitus, and Lysantius was Tetrarch of Abilene. That's a whole lot of talk, but, but basically what it means is that, that Philip was the Tetrarch of this, of this area known as Traconitus and, and Ithuria. And that is the area, as you look at your map, uh, to, the, to the north of the Sea of Galilee and moving off to the right or to the east. It includes the city of, um, of Bethsaida. It includes the city of Bethsaida, which is right there on, the, on kind of the north part of the Sea of Galilee, just to the east of the inlet of the Jordan River. And it includes the territory of what is called Caesarea Philippi. This is significant because this part is a Gentile land. There are not very many Jews that live in this part of, of uh, Herod's old kingdom. It's mostly Gentiles. And that means there aren't a lot of Pharisees. Not a lot of Jews, not a lot of Pharisees. That'll be important later. There is one other part of Herod's kingdom that we need to account for, and uh, that is called the Decapolis. You can see it there, the Decapolis. And uh, it actually was not part of Herod's kingdom. It's a buffer zone between the, the uh, north and central part of his kingdom. The Decapolis is, appear, appears there. And this, we're still all on map one, by the way. If, uh, I don't know what you're showing on the screen there. If you can still come back to that map one. There we go. Good. 
So uh, the area of Decapolis, and you can see it's kind of a yellow, and it has a finger on it that intrudes to the west or to the left, and it, and it sort of separates Galilee from Samaria and Perea. Do you see it? Okay, so that's the Decapolis. That is a region that is of essentially ten Greek cities, and uh, they had been granted self-rule by Rome. And this is also a high Gentile area. So why do, I, why do I take the time to show you all this? Well, I take the time to show you all this because what I want you to understand is that in this part where Jesus conducts his ministry, there are conflicting civil authorities. There are four essential civil authorities. And uh, we could liken this perhaps to, to the different states here in the United States. You're in one state and you move to another state, when you, move from, when you leave California and you, and you arrive in Nevada, or you leave California and you arrive in, in Arizona, there's a different uh, set of, uh, of authorities that are, that are responsible. It's all under the oversight of the federal government. Well, it was all under the oversight of Rome, but there are these geographical areas, and they have different uh, leaders, different rulers, and if I can say it this way, uh, the ability to, to sort of keep one step ahead of the law by moving. So in the old days, before they instituted certain federal statutes here in the U.S., if you committed a crime in one state and you can make it across the border into another state, they, the first state can't get you. And that was, that was a frequent strategy that people employed. And that exists here in this time. So you need to know that. Hang on to it, tuck it away, we're coming back to it. So now, I want to trace you through the movement of Jesus. Okay, that was all background, for a background. So now, let's take a look at chapter 14, and beginning in verse 13. This is a map, this is a map 2, there we go, good. So this is, uh, this is Matthew's account here, beginning in chapter 14, verse 13, runs all the way to chapter 33. And it says, Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. So he, he departed to a secluded place. A secluded place. He had, he, had been, he had previously visited Nazareth. He had gone back to Capernaum, his, where he was living. And then he needs to get out of Dodge. And so he heads from Capernaum to Bethsaida. And when he does that, he moves from the territory of, uh, of Herod the, the uh, Tetrarch into the territory of Philip the Tetrarch. So he, he just moves. And you can see that it's not that much geographically, but politically it's crossing the state line. So he leaves Herod behind. He leaves Galilee behind. Next... Picking it up here in verse 34, he moves again, and it says in verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. So they come now to the land of Gennesaret. And so this is an interesting thing. So he goes back again. He moves back into the territory of Herod the Tetrarch. And the events that, that prompted this movement are, are really quite interesting. Matthew doesn't really report them all that well, but, but John picks it up in John chapter 6, and it's worth just flipping over there to, to get a feel for that. In John 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000, which Matthew speaks about here in, in chapter 14. But in John chapter 6, 
we learn that after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus dismisses the crowd, right? They want to make him king. He dismisses the crowd. He walks on the water, and he comes back to Gennesaret. And there he has this extended conversation with the Jews there. And, and he tells them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And at the end of it, verse 66 of John 6, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, did I not myself choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The, the thing to, important thing to notice is in verse 66, as a result of this, Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. It was the collapse of his, of his public Galilean ministry. The crowds have been following him, and now they turn back. When they find out what it really means to follow him, it collapses. It falls apart. And that emboldens the, uh, the Pharisees even more. And so, back to Matthew, in this case, chapter 15... And Jesus ends up in a confrontation in a place called Magdala. A place called Magdala. You see it there on the, on the, uh, in the middle of the, uh, on the, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, about halfway up. The town of Magdala. Here he has a conflict with the Pharisees over washing your hands before you eat. And it's an intense conflict. And it's interesting in, in verse 12... The disciples came to him and they, and they said to him, because Jesus says to them, listen, you, you, uh, you ignore the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. And in verse 12, the disciples came and they said to him, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? This is not like, you know, they're just a little mildly annoyed. They are, they are steaming over this. In fact, they are steaming so much over this confrontation that it's time for Jesus to get out of Dodge. It's time to get out of Dodge. And that's exactly what he does next, beginning in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now you can see, uh, you, you remember from the prior map where, where uh, Magdala was. right? It, it's right there between Gennesaret and Tiberias. And Jesus goes all the way to Tyre and Sidon. Now, that's not a short trip. Okay? That's not a short trip to Tyre and Sidon. It, it, it's a long, long way away, and they're walking. Okay? It's probably at least 70 miles and beyond to go to Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are, are the ancient cities of Phoenicia. They are ancient cities of Phoenicia. And the Phoenicians um, intersect in the history of the nation of Israel probably most profoundly through the name, uh, through the person of a queen that came from Phoenicia and married an Israelite king by the name of Ahab. The woman's name was Jezebel. You remember her? 
She came from Phoenicia. So Phoenicia is a very, very pagan area. Very pagan area. It is an entirely Gentile place, just covered, or covered is the wrong word, uh, just populated by pagans. And yet Jesus goes there. He goes there. And he travels to the area of Tyre, and then he goes further north to the area of Sidon. This would be like having a ministry in and around the city of Upland and Claremont and and maybe Rancho Cucamonga and so forth, and then going up to Las Vegas. I think, you know what, I think I'll just take a trip to Las Vegas and I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk. Why? Why would you do that? Hang on to that question. Why does he go so far? Beginning in verse 29. Next, departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. And having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. This takes us to uh, the map 6 there. Mark tells us in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 7, verse 31. I'll just, we'll take the time to turn you over there so you can see it. Mark seven thirty-one. Get to Mark's gospel, and then that would help me. Mark 7.31, again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Within the region of Decapolis. So he travels all the way up to Tyre, all the way up to Sidon, and then all the way back down to the region of Decapolis. The region of Decapolis. And it is there by the Sea of Galilee in Decapolis that he he ends up feeding the 4,000. That's where the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 occurs. After the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus moves again. Beginning in, uh, in verse 39, chapter 15, and and he sends away the crowds after he's fed the 4,000. And he gets into a boat, and he comes to the region of Magadan, or we could call it Magdala. It's the same place. So he's back again. And there, when he, when he arrives at this place, and it, and it takes us through um, verse 4 of chapter 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they pounce on him again, and they want him to show them a sign. And he says, you're not going to get a sign out of me. No sign except the sign of Jonah, right? Verse 4, chapter 16. After that confrontation, verse 5, chapter 16 of Matthew, the disciples came uh, came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. So they move again. And this time they move to Bethsaida. So they get out of the territory of Herod the Tetrarch and the confrontation they've just had with the with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they move to Bethsaida, the other side of the sea. This is the territory of Philip, the Tetrarch. Here, Jesus next moves further uh, north. 
And so he moves in verse 13. Now when Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So now he leaves, right? He leaves Bethsaida and he, and he travels further north in the territory of Philip and he arrives at what is known as Caesarea Philippi, way up there in the north. Now when we get to this, I'll tell you more about it, but Caesarea Philippi was a very, very pagan area. Very pagan area. There was a city there called Banyas or Panyas. It was uh, dedicated to the god Pan. And it was a place for Roman legionnaires to come and have rest and relaxation. And if you can imagine how a Roman soldier would rest and relax, you can get a kind of an idea of what that particular city of Banyas or Panyas is was like. Yet Jesus goes, not to the city, but to the area. Why? Why does he go to a place where there are no Jews? To a place that is an area that is is renowned for its paganism and and its commitment to pagan gods. But he does. And that's where he goes. And that's where... Philip makes his confession, right, of thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is also the place where Jesus foretells his death, burial, and resurrection for the very first time. After that, Jesus moves further north to Mount Hermon. He goes further north, now to Mount Hermon. There on Mount Hermon, completely outside the the borders of of the territorial rule, occurs the event we know as the Transfiguration, right? He goes up on the mountain, he takes three disciples with him, and he shows them his glory. He shows them his glory there. They come down from the mountain, and they move again. And interestingly now, where do they go? Back to Capernaum. Back to Capernaum. And so they travel all the way south again, back to the city of Capernaum, the place where his ministry has been headquartered. And there in Capernaum, Jesus predicts his death again. Verse 22 Matthew chapter 17, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and, will, and he will be raised on the third day and they were deeply grieved. They are deeply grieved. He's been in Caesarea Philippi and he said, I'm going to be killed. He takes him to Mount Hermon and he shows him his glory. He takes him back to Capernaum and he says, I'm going to be killed. And there in Capernaum, chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 1, at that time, in that place, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You can only imagine the the, uh, pain in his heart, right? He has told them twice now, at least twice in the record, that I am to be killed 
and raised again. And they come to him and they say to him, okay, we've been arguing along the way here. We, we want to know which of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I can only imagine Jesus saying, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? In response to this, uh, argue about who's the greatest, Jesus gives lessons to them on humility and how to restore relationships within the new community that is going to be born by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, the church. And so we arrive at that passage in Matthew chapter 18 where it talks about someone unreconciled within the body and the process by which that person becomes reconciled commonly known as church discipline. And then the account goes silent. All of that, what I just showed you and told you, happens in six months, and then the record in Matthew goes silent. And it's it's not picked up again until just before the Passion Week. So what happens during those, those last six months? Well, during those last six months, Jesus moves out of Galilee and the north permanently, and and he takes his ministry to Perea. He moves to Perea. And, and, And Luke and John pick up the narration and and tell us what happened during those times. So if you go to to, uh, Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, this is a great verse uh, for you to uh, circle or do something with. Because Luke 9, 51, it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So beginning in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, running all the way through Luke 17 and verse 10, is a narration of that last six months. John also picks it up in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. He was unwilling to walk in Judea because of the Jews. They were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was hand. His brother said, why don't you go down there? If you want to be popular, that's where you need to be. And, uh, and Jesus says, you know, your time, my time's not your time. And then uh, when they had gone to the feast, verse 10, he himself also went up, not publicly, but secretly. So Jesus moves out of Galilee to Perea. And the reason he goes to Perea is because it puts him within striking range of Jerusalem. And he makes three trips to Jerusalem in that last six months. But he can do it safely from Perea because after each trip, he can turn around and he can run back across the Jordan River and to a, to a new political place, and he can evade the Jewish authorities. Matthew's Gospel gives us, it picks it up right at the end here in, in Matthew chapter 19. where there's two conflicts that Matthew records between Jesus and the Pharisees, and they happen in Perea. Verse 1, 19, When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee, came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Judea beyond the Jordan is Perea. And large crowds follow them. He heals many of them. 
And there he gets into a conflict with the Pharisees, first over divorce, the, the question of divorce, and then the rich young ruler comes to him as well. And in both cases, they're trying to trap him. It's an attempt to trap him. And he avoids the trap. And finally, when the time is right, he's going to go up to Jerusalem. He's finally going to go to Jerusalem. And so he will leave Perea in the company of the pilgrims heading up to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. In their company, he will, he will cross the Jordan River at Jericho. And he will move from there up to the city for his final presentation of himself. That's what he does in the last year of his life. He's here, he's there, he's here, he's there, he's here. It's like, where's Waldo? Right? There's sightings of him everywhere. Why? Why did Jesus move about so much in that final year? What's going on? Well, think with me. He's had this this confrontation with with the Pharisees in the north in which they have committed the impardonable sin, right? He has then begun a, a parabolic teaching ministry in parables so that he can, can reveal truth to his disciples and conceal truth from those who, who don't want him. One of the reasons is not to inflame the antagonism further. He sends out his disciples two by two one last time. He says, go into all the, all the cities around Galilee, and if they receive you, great. If they don't receive you, shake the dust off your sandal, get out of Dodge, go on to someplace else. And then they come back and they, and they report to him what happened. Take you back to Matthew 14. In verse 1. At that time, after those events, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. And then we get a flashback about Herod's execution of John the Baptist. So you can, you can begin to get sort of a flavor of this. He is not popular. His forerunner has been executed. If he stays and continues among the people who want no part of him and the religious leadership that is stalking him and trying to trip him up at every turn in some word or, or situation that they'll manufacture in order to catch him, he's got to get away. He's got to get away. And so why does he move? Well, one of the reasons he moves is he is is seeking to avoid the premature arrest by the political and religious authorities. He's not ready to die. It's not time to die. Right? Jesus says, you know, I lay my life down by my own authority, right? No one takes it from me. I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. That's an amazing statement about the deity of Christ. But understand that the, that the God-man operated in the, in, in, the, in the power and wisdom of the Spirit as a man. And so he needs to avoid the premature confrontation that will lead to his crucifixion. Not before he's ready. 
And the easiest way to, to avoid it is to stay on the move. Stay on the move. The religious authorities, they need the, the permission and the authorization of the Roman political authorities in order to kill him. That plays itself out in the, at the end, right? They have, to come, they have to bring him before Pilate. They get to get Pilate to crucify him. Can't, you know, kill him yourself. We can't do that. So the way to stay out of the clutches of the Roman authorities is to move from territory to territory to territory to territory. And that's exactly what he does. As soon as Herod's interest becomes heightened in Jesus, Jesus gets out of Herod's territory. He moves. When the crowds want to make Jesus king, he moves again. When his public support collapses, according to John chapter 6 and and verse 66, at that point there is no more protection for him. You remember the the religious leaders, they say, you know, uh, we need to seize him and kill him. And they say, oh, we can't do it now during the feast. It'll cause a riot. And so they, they tempt Judas to, to betray him secretly so that they can snatch him. So when Jesus' public support has, has collapsed, he no more has the protection of the crowds. He's no more the popular prophet. And so his strategy is a simple one. It is to move often. He'll stay in one place, he'll teach, and then he'll move as soon as it gets too hot. And he'll go here, and then he'll go there. And he'll, sometimes he'll completely leave Israel for a while. And then he'll come back again. So he's moving, 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 moving. Always one step ahead of the hangman until he's ready. And when he's ready, he will turn and set his face towards Jerusalem like flint, the scripture says. And he will march straight into the lion's den. And he'll be arrested, illegally tried, and crucified. So why does he move? It's a strategy. It's a strategy. Be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. He is as wise as a serpent. He continues to move. That's one reason. There is a second reason. The second reason is, is because Jesus knows that his messianic presentation to the nation of Israel has been rejected. Right? The Pharisees have committed the unforgivable sin. He has sent out his disciples two by two. They have been rejected in all the towns around the north part of the Sea of Galilee. He himself has visited. He has said, hey, Capernaum, you know, you think uh, all of this privilege has been given to you. Tyre and Sidon are going to have it easier in the judgment than you do. He has been entirely and totally rejected. They are not going to receive their king. And God is going to be doing something different. He's going to launch a a new enterprise called the church. And, And there, in that new enterprise called the church, the disciples are going to play a very, very key role. And it's going to be it's going to be birthed through his death, burial, and resurrection. And he needs to get them ready for this. Because to this point in time, it's been John the Baptist saying, you know, right? Repent, clear the way. Messiah is coming. 
The people are all pouring out to be baptized by John. They're following Jesus everywhere. You know, the crowds, everywhere he turns, they're constantly after him. He's doing all of these miracles. He's continuing to speak to them. And, and then finally, they just turn away. They turn away. And the disciples at this point in time, are, they, are, they are in danger of being crushed. So Jesus needs to, he needs to teach them. He needs to disciple the disciples. He needs to prepare them for the news of his impending death. And every time he says, I'm going to die, I mean, the first time he says it to Peter, what does Peter say? All right? Take a look at it in Matthew 16. Who am I? Who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're, you know, John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, verse 14, chapter 16. Others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Who do you say? Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And verse 21 And from that time, Jesus began began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And Peter says, hey, hey Jesus, let's talk. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, that could be comical. It wasn't so serious. Thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God. By the way, Messiah, get over here. Let me, let, me, let me just straighten you out. God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns and says to Peter, look at it. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me say, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. He has got to prepare this group of men for the reality that this, they are not going to ride his coattails into, into Jerusalem and, and one sit at his right and one sit at his left. And, you know, they're arguing. And by the way, they argue all the way up to Jerusalem. All right? They even get their mother involved. And Jesus is saying, this, is, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. You need to understand what is happening here because you've got to get ready because I'm going to die. And when I die, if you are not ready, this whole thing is going to collapse. It still looks good to you. Chapter 16, but verse, verses 11 and 12. I mean, this is right after the feeding of the 4,000, right? And so he, he takes off again, and, and, uh, and he warns them. Jesus says in verse 6, chapter 16, he says, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they begin discuss, discussing with themselves, saying, He tells us this because we didn't bring any bread. We forgot to bring the lunch. And he says, What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Verse 11. How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
because their teaching is going to lead to his crucifixion. They are going to completely dismantle him. And you need to be ready. And you need to be ready. And I, and I can't get you ready as long as I stay in the confines of the north part of the Sea of Galilee because every time I'm trying to put these truths into your thick heads... I end up with a confrontation of the Pharisees, and if I don't move, they're, they're going to kill me. So we, we need to go on a retreat. That's what we got to do. We need to, go on a, we need to go on an extended discipleship retreat. And so he moves here, and he moves there, and he goes way up here, and then he goes way over here. And he is constantly, that's the picture, he is constantly one step ahead of the hangman, trying to get along with his disciples, trying to tell them what's going to happen and prepare them for it. And they still don't get it. And they're dogging his trail, the the religious authorities are. And so he's constantly moving, 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 moving. Along the way, telling them, I'm going to die. Yeah, but, you know, when you come in your kingdom... Can I have some of the spoils? I'm going to die. Very serious stuff. Very serious stuff. He is soon to die for the sins of his people. God is going to inaugurate a new program called the church. He is is going to begin to, to... no longer deal exclusively with his ancient people Israel, but he is going to open it up to the world. All right, by the time we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, they get the Great Commission. The Great Commission says, not just go to the house of Israel, to the, to the last sheep of the house of Israel, but go to the world. And they need to understand that. It's going to be a mixed remnant. Drawn from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They've got a lot of learning. They've got a lot they need to learn. And so he's trying, trying, trying to teach them. I mean, you think about it. If you were to want to launch a worldwide missionary effort to completely transform the world... Would you choose a dozen fishermen who spend a good deal of their time bickering with each other about who's greatest? I mean, it's astounding. It is absolutely astounding. And yet that's exactly what happens. And so he teaches them, he teaches them, he teaches them. And he's going to release them. He's going to release them. What do I do with all of this? Well, there's a bunch of places I could go. Certainly one needs to be trained before one is sent out, huh? But I think for me, as I, as I think through this, as I trace it on the map, as I, I think about the implications of all of this, what, what, I, what I come to in, in my heart is a, is a greater love for my Savior, a greater appreciation. He's not just a, this, this religious figure who, you know, the Son of God who, who sort of 
breezes through life. He's a man. He's a man who lives and and ministers in the power of the Spirit of God. Is he the Son of God? Is he very God of very God? Absolutely. But beloved, he accomplished his, his, his public ministry as a man. And the more I think about that, the more I love him. And I trust that the more you get to know him, the more you love him too. If you do not know Jesus this morning as your Savior, then I invite you to think seriously on these things. To recognize your need for a Savior. For one who can stand in the gap between you and a holy God. To take upon himself the punishment to do your sin. To drink the cup of the wrath of God to the the final drop. And then to smash death by rising again on the third day and giving willingly eternal life to all who will have it. If you don't have eternal life, it is available to you even now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the the depth of it. Thank you that it is not just a, a loose collection of religious stories. A whole, a whole series of, of sort of disconnected teachings. But it is a fully and wholly accurate account of the historical reality of the Son of God as He lived and moved and walked among men. Ultimately going to a Roman cross to die for the sin of the world. Raised on the third day. Ascended to the right hand of the of the Father, where now He sits and intercedes on behalf of His people, soon to return. Establish His kingdom, in which He will judge the living and the dead. Oh, Father, may You increase our love for this Savior, for our Savior. Amen. God bless you this morning, folks. You come back next week, and we won't move around so much. We'll, uh, we'll talk a little more about Herod killing John, huh? That'll be edifying.